Fitness Show. Conversations to help optimize the present moment and maximize your future potential. Hello, welcome to episode 103 of the Matt Marnie Fitness Show. I hope you're well, guys. In today's episode, I speak to Dr. Brendan Stubbs. Brendan is the head of physiotherapy at the South London and Maudsley NHS Foundation Trust. He's a clinical lecturer and a prolific researcher in the area of exercise and physical activity and how it relates to mental health and cognitive function. I think we instinctively know that when we move more and we exercise, we feel better. But sadly, I think the message is still all about calories, losing weight, building muscle, reducing body fat. And look, to me, this evidence that Brendan has been producing consistently now for many years is the holy grail of why we should be moving more and exercising more. Please digest this information. Enjoy. Brendan, welcome to the show. How are you, mate? You good? Thank you so much, Matt. I'm really pleased to be here. Thanks for having me on. I oh, know it's, it's a pleasure. Um, so you're in Europe at the moment. So what time is it for you where you are? So the time at the moment in well, I'm in Austria is ten forty. Okay, so quite early. So have you been up long? Have you trained? Have you drunk loads oh. of coffee? What's what's happened? So up, yeah, up nice and early. Wake up about half six, and then went to do a, a sort of functional workout oh, early okay. on in the morning. Get a bit of that. It's very cold here. It's minus five degrees Celsius at the moment. So uh, yeah, get out, move the body. And for me, that's important. Getting up that sort of discipline to sort mm. of wake up, get up, move my body, and it sets me up for the rest of the day. Yeah. Are you a big coffee drinker? I do enjoy coffee. Now I do like it. Now I'm I'm obviously a few hours ahead of you. I'm at like twenty to two in the afternoon here in Dubai, and I have introduced the caffeine curfew. Um, so normally two o'clock, but let me just show you on on screen. I've got a cup of tea, right? Look how big this cup is. Wow, absolutely massive, right? So let's just show that. It's, it's huge. I don't use this cup often. It's it's a Warner Brothers Studio cup that literally I had one tea bag left when I walked in. So stuck it in there and I thought I'd just let it brew. So I'm ready to rock and roll. I've, I've been looking forward to this conversation for some time. Thank you for your time. Uh, I suppose before we kick off, um, why don't you just introduce yourself to the listeners and who you are and and actually why you do what you do? Because I think that that gives us the backstory and, and where this passion comes from. Sure. So my sort of professionally, my, my, my first degree was physiotherapy. So it was all about movement helping people adapt their lifestyle to to be less to be in less pain to live be more sort of functional in their lives um and then early on after i graduated i was given the opportunity to work in mental health services so 2003 uh, and that was quite unusual then because there was still much more stigma around mental health and mental illness uh, along with people generally and people were like why are you going to work in that environment but for me it was amazing and i just saw there, the first hand, uh, well, well, two things. The first thing was I was shocked about how sedentary people were, people still smoking on the wards, staff and patients were smoking together, um, and just the availability of really crap food was just really, really profound. And people weren't prioritising movement, access to nature, with beautiful grounds where we worked. I just thought something needs to be done here. So I started off some really simple things about getting people out, getting people moving with you know, really chronic depression, bipolar disorder, you know, acquired brain injury, and just saw firsthand just people given the opportunity to get out and to move, to be in the fresh air, just saw what an impact it had on them in terms of energy levels. So then I was just like, well, we're, we're onto something here. And that kind of opened up my eyes um, because not many people were really talking about the importance of physical activity for in, in mental health treatment. So it was so it was it was it was good, and then we were sort of faced with the thing. Okay, you know, we accept that conceptually, physical activity and movement is good for our mental health, but where's the evidence really? And and we can't really go off. You know, we, we sort of make sense. So then I suppose after that and a bit of training, I did a masters and then did a PhD. So I became really interested in how do we apply these research skills to build up the evidence to demonstrate. What sort of I intuitively knew from what I was seeing with the patients I was working with, or known in my own life, is that when I move, 
I feel good. And then when I don't, I sit around all day and I get access to sunlight as I don't feel very good. So we spent a large part of time with many people all over the world trying to really build the credibility of the evidence for physical activity and exercise and movement. And I've spent the last 10 years or so doing that. And, and now I'm really at the stage where we've got lots of this evidence and data and not many people disagree with the sort of science at this stage. But now it's really about translation for me in terms of translation for knowledge, awareness, raising, and then also doing initiatives to really make a difference to people's lives. And that's kind of a, a short version of who I am and how I got where I am. It's really interesting because I, I spent uh, 12 years in an orthopedic clinic. I used to manage the gym. I was surrounded by musculoskeletal physios, chiros, osteos. Um, and I've noticed, actually, the interesting thing is my, my friends who are musculoskeletal physios, uh, been in practice for years, their practice has kind of changed. So one of my good friends, sports physio, works with the active population. It used to be all about biomechanics and about, you know, uh, movement patterns and pain. And now simple things like sleep, nutrition, <laughs> hydration, uh, friendship groups, interconnection with individuals has all come under this umbrella, particularly of pain. Um, but sorry, I've just ruffled, but rewinding the tape. So I, I, I read somewhere or I heard somewhere that it, far back as 2006, you, with these elderly, were they predominantly elderly patients in this mental health uh, cl yeah, clinic? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, 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 so two thousand. So that was kind of like the first foray into writing about what we were doing. So, I was working in 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 a hundred bed old adult uh, unit for uh, people with you know who are old riders who had various mental health conditions and needed to be in hospital because the nature of their illness meant that they needed that support. Um, and really, what we did was really quite simple. Then is people very sedentary. You know, people left the ward only to go and smoke at that stage or to go and eat. So it wasn't yeah. really sort of very proactive, beneficial lifestyle. So what we did is we got everybody pedometers. Um, if people can remember those at that time, you I had to get this. like, yeah, yeah. yeah, you had to get, you had to get bits and pop people. And then we started every morning <laughs> is we'd pop it on people's waistband and then we'd have like a bit of a chart on the wall. So people could come and write their scores um, and just got people that awareness of that this could be a good metric to look at your your sort of your health and well-being as opposed to focusing on i don't know structured exercise and weight loss whereas you know you can do something about the steps that you're doing today um, but it's very difficult to change many other parameters so let's give people something they can measure and take control of today and it was really encouraging to see the interest from people who were not really that interested in, in doing a lot of things um sort of coming up and wanting to write their scores up very proudly and um yeah it was just a it was a great pro pro project yeah i mean you were you were literally gamifying activity which is now all the rage with these watches and and some individuals do respond really well to these metrics so you're seeing this firsthand so you're going actually anecdotally these people are moving these people are happier they're healthier everything's improving so the, the masters and then the phd was it kind was that kind of direction you headed in then yeah, so, so so I was doing the masters alongside because I just thought I'm doing a lot of stuff in clinical practice that I can't find the evidence for, and uh, I'd also people are encouraging me if if you don't know the evidence is there, why don't you try and start writing about what you're doing? And I was just like, I don't, I'm not qualified to do this. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to start. So that kind of started me on like a, a, another journey. Um, yeah. And the masters was very helpful for that. But I think it's really when I got the PhD, it was a very privileged time because. I had just three years <clears throat> to focus on doing my research apprenticeship. Um, and that was just a great time to sort of network and develop those skills so I could try and develop and translate some of the evidence. And the, the topic of the PhD was, was activity and mental health. So it was actually activity and pain in older people. So Amazing. people, older people with chronic pain and how it influenced their psychological concerns around falling fear of falling, the actual physical activity levels, and then falls for people. Oh, incredible. I mean, yeah. I'm, I, and as I say, I'm, I'm so grateful to have you on the show because I've been in the fitness wellness space over 20 years. And in, the, in my early career at the clinic, we used to run, we run community-based exercise referral schemes. We used to run kids' weight management schemes. So I was active, I've been actively involved in this stuff for a long time. And, you know, as far back as 2005, so 12-week course they were, someone would get sent to the gym from the GP, 
12 week prescription. Hopefully at the end of the day, they go, this exercise stuff is good. I feel comfortable. I carry on. What I noticed even back then was you'd get the referral form from the GP, primary referral, OA, diabetes, hypertension, secondary, just depression, anxiety, depression. It was just, it was just mm. all over these forms, right? Kids weight management scheme. I worked with teenagers, 12 to 16. I worked at a clinic and it was, they, they would literally come in, the clinical dietitian would take the first half, it was all eat well, play. I mean, you know, it wasn't that inspiring. But anyway, they had to do it. They follow NHS guidelines. Then they'd do an hour with me, an hour's activity or whatever it was. And when I spoke to these teenagers, and this was going back, it was it was just the same stuff. They were there because mum and dad said you're overweight, but underlying all this stuff, it was just there. And that's when I started to connect the dots. I used to think, well, this is really quite important. I'd see the value of someone who was sent to the gym because of hypertension and, you know, they, they were isolated. They weren't working because they, they were signed off with depression. But you just see a, a massive change in people and you just see how that just filters into every aspect of their life. And I'm going to throw this out there now, Brendan. I genuinely believe that the fitness industry, the wellness space, has kind of forgotten this. Like, honestly, mate, it blows my mind that it's almost like people say, oh, um, you know, metabolic health, resistance training, I get that, bone density, ligaments, tendons, falls prevention, longevity, all over that. But the, the one of the top is weight loss, macros, waste, you know, this kind of, but it's like the most like obvious thing is this. And people just flow it out flippantly, don't they? They just go, oh yeah, there's the, obviously the mental health benefits. You get some endorphins and some, and it's almost like we forget, but it's just, that's what I find about your work is so inspiring. Is like the fitness industry, Fitness professionals, not just GPs and medical practitioners, fitness professionals. If you're a personal trainer and you want to sell your services, there are in Dubai, there are hundreds of personal trainers doing these random workouts on Instagram and talking about, you know, calorie deficits. And it's just like, this is the stuff. Because if you nail this, the rest follows. Anyway, I'm rambling. Um, sorry. But no, I just, I just think we've forgotten. We've, this is like we've just, it's lost its voice, the fitness industry, and we need to find it. And the great thing is, we've got your research now that we can, we can plug into. Um, so couldn't agree more. Yeah, it's, it's so. I'm, yeah, it's just that's why when I came across your work, mate, I was just like, oh my god, this is. And then I delved into it even more, and that's what I'm hopefully going to do now. So let's talk about all the exciting research that you've done, and I know you've done, you've done. Quite a few studies in your Quite time. Yeah, I know. And I cherry-picked a few that I've, I've heard you reference or I've read about, which I just think are incredible and people need to hear about it. So, I don't know. Uh, let's pick off. The first one I'll pick is, um, and you'll obviously know when the, the studies were, but there was a, you took a, a and these are all, um, I mean, again, research. Randomized controlled is that the the gold standard? So then you've got yeah. Groups. So yes, yeah, so the randomized controlled trial is the gold standard. So if you want to show if something is working, to in order to show if there's a causal benefit, is you need to do a randomized controlled trial. Because otherwise, if I was developing Brendan's intervention, say I wanted to do Brendan's intervention for exercise, I may all of a sudden get a group of people who say, "Oh, you look motivated," and measure motivation, or you look like you're going to engage, and I might think I'm going to pick all of them and then put them and these other ones, you know you're not very motivated, I'm going to put you in a control group and I'm going to set this up to show Brendan's intervention works like a treat. And that's yes. kind of not how, that's the opposite to what randomised control trials do is it removes all of the bias um, around sort of selection, about what people go in different groups and all measurements. So it's really the gold standard. Amazing. Uh, and and so the, the first study I found fascinating was uh, a group of individuals and obviously you split them up into two groups. And I think, and you can tell us a bit more, baseline mental health was was pretty good and you followed these people over seven years is that right and then yeah. you measured their activity levels and then came to some conclusions yeah absolutely so this is the paper we did in the american journal of, of psychiatry which is a very credible psychiatric journal and essentially we wanted to sort of test the assumption do people who engage in high levels of physical activity or some have better mental health in the future and can we look at the direction in that relationship so we got over 250,000 people all over the world. 250,000? Wow. Yeah. Okay. And cool. we measured all of their physical activity levels at the baseline. So how much people are doing over a typical week? 
And then we measured other important things that could influence people's mental health, you know, age, sex, body mass index, uh, socioeconomic status. And we measured that as best as, as best as we could from the sort of published literature. And then we wanted to sort of, you know, rule out anyone who had mental health symptoms or depression at the beginning, and they were not included. So these are people who had no mental health symptoms at baseline, no depression was evident. And then they were followed up for just over seven years. Um, this included uh, adolescents, working age adults and older adults. And we wanted to see, does this baseline level of physical activity, does it predict the instance of, of new cases of depression in the future? And we found that people who were most active compared to the least active, around 15% less likely to have depression seven or so years later. Yeah. And also the uh, people who engaged in sort of recommended guidelines of 150 minutes per week, around 30% less likely to develop depression in the future. So that shows a direction in the relationship and shows that more is better than some and some is better than none. Um, and that was kind of like the the sort of you know the, the sort of indication that movement is good for our is good for our mental health, and I think that's quite a, a nice study to show that. And that was evident in adolescents, adults, and um, older adults too. And it didn't matter where you were in the world, we saw a similar effect for people. And I think you know off the back of that, we've we've done some other studies which will sort of tap into which sort of strengthen those findings. Yeah, no, that's just that's just incredible. Two hundred fifty thousand people across the world, across the world. different cultures. Wow. Okay, so that that's that's pretty convincing evidence. But it does, I mean, there's loads. We'd have to cherry pick. The the other one that I I heard you discussing was because um, we're talking about activity. So obviously, people say, "Well, I've got to be engaged. I'm too busy to be active." But this one actually looked at the uh, the impact of actually being sedentary because often I think when we think about activity, I think people have this misconception that they've got to hit the gym or punish themselves. And we'll get into that about this perception of what exercise should and shouldn't be. Actually, I think it was groups of 20 year olds where they, there was forced, <laughs> forced sedentary behavior. So, and then we can look at the, the correlation. So it's not just the activity, it's the lack of activity that's contributing. So I don't know if you mind touching on that study as yeah, well. Not at all. So there's, there's two studies that were done close together on this. And these are randomized trials. Normally, if you do a randomized controlled trial, is we give people something helpful. We give people therapy, exercise, medication, and then we compare it to no intervention. And, and this, what they did is they got young people who were in their uh, u university who were free from any mental health or physical health condition <clears throat> and they all were regular exercises so people who are regularly engaging in exercise and then what they asked them to do is stop playing all sport and exercise and um in, you know engage in more sedentary behavior and what you saw is in this uh, cohort so it's 30 people in each arm is you saw um you know everybody had sort of normal levels of, of sort of stress and mental health symptoms as a baseline but after a week of stopping playing sport and exercise um, and engage in sedentary behavior, you saw the mental health symptoms shoot up of those who were randomized to stop playing sport and be more sedentary. One, one week. One, one week, week, whereas the other wow. group just maintained static. But the good news is that as soon as that group starts engaging in exercise, their mental health symptoms came back down again. And if we think about you know the importance of movement for all of us, or you're injured or everything else, it probably means that movement you know is really important to us and this adds weight because it's a randomized controlled trial and another study did a similar design again in young people <clears throat> at university and they looked at the same thing and they found the same thing over over two weeks you know almost identical that if you ask people who are regular exercise to stop and you ask them to be more sedentary and you measure that with objective devices as people become more stressed and they also looked at the inflammatory profile of people um, wow. in this and they found that there was an inflammatory response as well with some of the interleukins increasing and we know that in people with depression for instance yeah. many of these sort of inflammatory markers are also out so it you know it's not just something people are feeling there is a real sort of yeah, you know, neurobiological and inflammatory response happening for people wow okay so the, the evidence again and, and it just gets you your head racing when you think about you know we'll get onto this but just this sedentary lifestyle that people lead i mean honestly brendan when you come to places like dubai if you layer in stuff like the weather in the summer where people struggle to move i kid you not mate when i came out here you don't even get out of your car to fill up petrol out here you pull yeah. up literally some fella fills your car up no one you press a button and some black 
So and 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 as you say, we'll get on to this. There's this this mental health crisis that employees employers are, are struggling with, and the NHS is struggling with. And wow. Um, so the next one, which I found, this one blew my head, and it blew my head because I, I when people talk about the hippocampus, so I'm I reference it a lot when I'm teaching introduction to meditation courses. So I'm a meditation teacher. I'm passionate about it. I'm fully aware of the the literature around it, the relationship between the hippocampus and the amygdala. But, you know, meditation, not always everyone's jazz. People find it hard to sit still. It's not an easy skill to develop. But the study in Japan, which was very recent, I believe, that was 2018. If you wouldn't mind sharing with with the listeners that study, because that blew my mind when I... Well, yeah, sure. So, so I think this is interesting from a number of different perspectives. So I think if we look at people who have cognitive conditions, people with mild cognitive impairment, dementia, um, or mental health conditions, depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, the, the area of the hippocampus is, is often, you know, it's almost universally reduced. So we see a reduction. So we think it's important that it's affected in these particular cognitive and, and brain conditions. Um, so this is some, this is an area of the brain which is really important. It's also important because it's one of the areas of the brain which can regenerate new cells and actually grow in size. So we're very interested in the preservation of this area and also increasing volume. And I'll talk about some studies after the description of this study around volume changes. But um, there's a certain type of brain scan that you can do to look at you know real time changes in blood. Uh, circulation or perfusion within key areas of the brain so you can put people in these type of uh, of PET or MRI scans and you can sort of see if you're talking to someone if you're getting some people to do a task what areas of the brain are really working in a, in a really profound way um, and what they did in this study in Japan was uh, you know quote-unquote healthy adults uh, mid-age in their sort of 40s um, and they wanted to say if we get people just doing some gentle cycling in one of these MRI scanners, and we randomize them again, and people who don't sense, what happens if we just look at people who don't move and look at people who are doing light cycling? So this would be like a very light walk. And what they found is just from like sort of 15 or 20 minutes is there was this sort of profound you know, increase in blood flow and circulation within these emotional processing areas, including the hippocampus. So it's just showing that just these small amounts of really light activity can result in meaningful changes within this sort of powerhouse of the brain for memory, concentration, for you know, all these important functions. And you know, you speak to many people, many people want to feel they're able to concentrate more, manage their emotions mm. more, they have better long-term memory. And this is just showing just 15 minutes, you can really change the dynamics with that's happening within your brain. So that was really profound. It's just honestly, when I heard you describing it, talking about it, it's just, it's it's literally a game changer because I don't know. I do work with corporates, and you know, people are too busy to go out for a walk at lunchtime because they're demanding. You, you try and encourage people. You try and tell them that creativity will go up fifty percent. You know, you talk about executive function. You talk about limbic system. You talk about all this stuff, and they don't hear it. But now I can literally go in and say, here is some hard evidence. But I'm going into pitch for a company like this is going on, and then obviously put it in in layman's terms. You said there was some more around the hippocampus. I'd love to continue with that. So yeah, so, more studies. So, yeah, so so what we've done is is we've also looked at you know can you change the volume or the size of the hippocampus, and this is kind of like a holy grail for mental health and cognitive disorders, uh, and not many things can actually change the size. And we've demonstrated that um, through uh, sort of you know, aerobic exercise and potentially some resistance exercise, but most work has been done in aerobic exercise that over like just over eight weeks, you can get real changes in the volume of the hippocampus um, for people's brain. So not only is that you're seeing in the short term, you know, increases of you know, blood flow and, and neurotrophic factors, but you're actually seeing volumetric changes within this key area of the brain, um, you know, in a matter of, of, of weeks, which is, which is really, really, really quite profound. And just to listeners, the, the neurotropic factor, the BDNF you talk about, it's like fertilizer for the brain. So basically, if you want to, if you want to be sharper or remember stuff better, this is this is useful because when when I look at the literature around the hippocampus, I think there's this just this belief or acceptance. I think this acceptance that after the age of thirty, we lose you know one percent decreases in the size of the hippocampus moving forward, and cognitive cognitive decline, as you will know, is 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 huge. I mean, 
I think if you look at someone like Joe Biden, <laughs> I mean, I think we're kind of seeing cognitive decline on 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 such a it's it's really sad to see it. Yeah. But I don't think we just need to accept it. I think it's just the acceptance that as we age, we remember less. As we age, we're not as sharp. I, I, it's a bit like muscle mass. This whole thing of sarcopenia kicks in after the age of thirty, and there's going to be this massive drop. And it's like the evidence coming out now about strength training is like, nah, you can hold on to type two fibers, a type one, like type one fibers long, but yeah. So all this stuff is is changing, and yeah, it's just it's so encouraging. It's so encouraging to know as well that if you are, uh, if there's been some decline, that you can get active and reverse that. So what you're saying is we can we can Absolutely. almost make our brain younger. You know, there, there's not that you know there's there's you know it, it's true that we need to work harder to maintain muscle mass or hippocampal volume is you know we could what we could have got away in our twenties or thirties we could have got away with minimal training or minimal things. Mm. It's true that there will be, but it doesn't mean that if we if we you know do activities that we can't slow down or even halt the changes within that. And I think that's what we're really sort of seeing. But when it comes to sort of cognition and hippocampus in particular, what we do know is that if people do allow themselves to go too far down that route, where cognitive changes happen, I don't know, people start having mild cognitive impairment, it's much more difficult mm. to reverse that than to be a sort of more preventative approach to sort of optimise brain health across the lifespan. And one of the studies that we're, we're finishing recruitment at the moment at King's, it's really interesting looking at this concept because mild cognitive impairment dementia is difficult to change hippocampus and generate new nerve cells. But we're looking at people with uh, sort of 45 to 59 who've got subjective memory complaints. So if you do some objective tests on people and get people doing these executive function tests, there's no deficits. But people are saying, oh, I just feel a bit more forgetful. Um, mm. or I can't, I'm not quite as sharp as I used to be. You know, so they're just starting to have these feelings that their mind is not working as well. But they don't, if you test them, there's no major deficit. And what we're doing is we've done an aerobic and resistance type exercise with this cohort of people. And we're trying to see in a randomized controlled trial if we can preserve and increase the volume of the hippocampus. And then we're looking at sort of gut microbiome changes within that because we've not really understood um how does the gut microbiome play mm. a role within hippocampal neurogenesis as the sort of scientific term is so that's we're just literally finishing recruitment in the next month so that'll be coming out um you know probably later this year wow so i mean when it comes to to gut microbiome and gut health i mean <laughs> there's so much research coming out they talk about the gut brain connection so there's a suggestion that the the gut microbiome have an impact on hippocampal volume yes and we're wow. just seeing we're seeing if people exercise and those that do have hippocampal changes how how does their gut microbiome changes and could gut microbiome changes be an indicator that exercise is working and they're improving hey guys i hope you're enjoying the episode i just wanted to hop on and ask particularly if you're a regular listener if you could do me a solid and hop on and leave a five-star review. It will take literally one minute and I would greatly appreciate it. Even better if you could leave a few words. It helps push the podcast up the rankings. The algorithm loves it and it gets this in front of more people. Back to the episode. Wow. And... Just you talking about the gut microbiome now just reminds me. I, I heard you talking on Rangan Chatterjee's podcast, and you guys talked about uh, a guy called Felix Jacker who'd done a study around nutrition. And just when you said that, so just for listeners, it was it was a twelve week study, and I think he changed individuals with moderate to severe uh, depression, stuck them on what sounded like a, a a Mediterranean diet, you know, more fruit and vegetables. <laughs> lean proteins, and they saw massive changes in um, mental health symptoms just in 12 weeks or remission. So that's making me think now, like, you know, we know that the food that we consume has a direct impact on gut microbiome. So I don't know, I'm just guessing, but it just, I mean, that's another thing that's yeah. worth mentioning. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think you know, Felice has done some really interesting work and people have generally that, 
um you know if you eat like your typical sad diet like your standard american diet as it's called you know lots of ultra processed foods that people have a reduced hippocampal volume and there's also this whole notion that you know does the brain shrink as the waste expands also um so felice has done some observational work within that and uh, felice did this study a few years ago but what 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 she really wanted to sort of do is is if is is can we do a dietary intervention to improve people's diet quality? You know how important diet is um, mm. to improve people's mental health symptoms. She did a randomized controlled trial and showed that if you have people with sort of mild depression and you get them on a Mediterranean style diet, you let the other group carry on as usual, you see improvements in people's mental health symptoms. And you know, one of the sort of the sort of comments from people is often that oh it's a bit expensive to eat uh, you know a sort of a, you know nutritious whole food diet and I understand I understand that but she actually showed that it was it was cost it was a similar cost to eat in sort of nutritious whole food diet than uh, than than without and, and and in light of this her work and other work is we've we've recently developed the lifestyle intervention guidelines for all of depression so we've made recommendations. And so we made a psychiatric journal that's saying, yes, we value that for some people at some times, medication plays an important role. Of course it does. Yeah. We say for some yeah. people at some times, psychological therapy is really important. But what about the whole of lifestyle? What about movement, nutrition, you know, stress reduction? And, and that's all been going in to say, how can we get this into practice? There's really good evidence and we really need to start incorporating this in, in practice. Yeah, I mean, we know, don't we, that... that you are what you eat food is medicine um and it's almost a bit like the exercise thing we just throw it out there don't we it's good for your mental health to exercise but then we're focused on whether or not you know carnivores proteins more thermogenic and it satiates me and i'm going to lose weight and we just we lose that and the nutrition is really important actually thinking about nutrition i don't know if there's any any correlation between depression anxiety and the choices of food because I have, I always figured, you know, when I've, I'm feeling, you know, I mean, I've, I've had battles with my mental health. It was many years ago. But when I was in those spots, I tend to lean out and eat more rubbish food. I don't know if there's any any evidence to suggest that when someone is struggling with their mental health, they they pick the Twix or the Snickers uh, rather than the apple and the bit of salad. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a bit like the physical activity is in terms of. You know, if we if we're if we're feeling a bit low or depressed, then we're, we're our natural inclination is by motivation is we tend to be less active. But then if we are more active and we're let, we we improve our how we feel. So what we call in research is it's a bi-directional relationship, and it's like that with food. So that if we eat good nutritious food, that we and our mental health and our brain health improves. But then also if we are struggling with our mental health, depression, anxiety then we've got sort of reward processes areas in the brain and and basically the brain wants a shortcut it needs a short-term fix and comfort and often um for those who've experienced it that is you know it's very easy to sort of pick up food and have a short-term hit for a reward uh, and i'm sure many people who've done this myself included have reached out for something which you know is a, provide the short-term fix but then it's not made them feel good you know soon afterwards and it's not very good for their health as well so we do recognize that when people have been struggling with their mental health is people tend not to eat as well on average because it is more effortful to eat this and it requires it requires a certain degree of, of, of discipline uh to you know eat you know, quote unquote healthier things as opposed to smashing a chocolate bar or a tub of ice cream no, and that makes perfect sense actually when you say it about the reward systems. And you know, we've got these hyper, highly processed, hyper palatable foods. We've got that's crazy, isn't it? When we talk about this, we've got like literally scientists in labs tinkering around with food that's not good for us, <laughs> and just a bit like the social media engineers. You know those guys the other side of the screens that work for these tech firms. It's just like, it's like oh my god, we're really up against it um amazing so there's loads there and it's so good to hear there's a stack of evidence for movement there's a stack of evidence for nutrition and hopefully we can push this out and as i say i i genuinely i genuinely feel the fitness community need to grab hold of this stuff because this is the stuff that sells this is what most people are looking for they they you know and it's crazy out here it's this time of the year where people are smashing the life out of themselves for the wrong reasons <laughs> it's all about punishment and calorie deficit and reduction and get smaller or hopping in a nice bath because they don't feel 
good and they want to change the way they feel so they're, they're um, clucking, just, clucking the straws yeah and it's just you know if you know if, if everyone's intention was a lifelong engagement in this behavior we all agree that exercise is good for us you know if we want to engage in a lifelong in engagement then it's just really important that we do things that are sustainable and things that are going to make us feel good in the short short term as well um so you know it's all good and well if you want to go on a crash exercise routine i mean that's if that's what you want to do but not many people can do that for you know years and if you want to engage in exercise for years for lifelong brain health physical health mental health then you know crashing and burning is not a very good sustainable yeah. model whereas you know if you want to you know engage in in lifelong exercise because you want to improve your health and your well-being then it's much more important to be sustainable and in terms of like engagement as well as it's it's often it's very easy to sort of diminish the long-term risks and consequences of of, of our health decisions i don't know eating like crap food for instance or, or not exercising yeah. um we all diminish and downplay the risks in the future um so it you know it's, it's difficult for me to say i'm not going to exercise i'm 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 going to I'm not going to exercise today because in 30 years time I'll be at reduced risk of cardiovascular disease. That kind of is it's difficult for me to know. But as as if I sort of tap into this today, if I engage in physical activity and exercise today, that I felt sharper, I felt more alert, I felt more focused, I feel happier, I feel more able to sort of deal and cope with the things that are coming over the course of my day. My outlook is completely different from when I sort of woke up. You know, that's more sustainable and immediate and rewarding. For me as an individual and thinking about some theoretical long-term event or you know more or less punishment cycle of if i just you know force myself in eight weeks then i can do this event and be in x shape and then i can just let it all go it's it's that rival fallacy you see it i've seen it in the fitness space for years you see it in business you see it you know when i get here i will feel happy it's like no you won't you'll find something else to, to be unhappy about and it's that lifelong pursuit. Um, probably a lovely way to segue now into, or a nice point to segue into exercise itself. So people are listening, and maybe the mechanics of what's going on. So people are listening, they're probably thinking, oh, hippocampus, that sounds, all sounds a bit complicated. I mean, what is going on? Where should I start? What should I do? So let's just talk about modalities. Because, I mean, when we talk exercise, big umbrella, there's F45, smash the life out of yourself. There's a yoga class. There's walking. Let's delve into that. So, you know, I think that just to make people aware that the lens within which we can speak about evidence only reflects what people have researched. And often that reflects what's happened in society. So unsurprisingly, because of the focus historically, the most of the research has been done around aerobic exercise, because that's mm -hmm. the modality that most people have looked at and been aware of and has been more popular in society. So we've got really good evidence that aerobic exercise, both in the sort of short term or acute and also in the long term, can improve people's uh, mental health symptoms, improve people's cognition as well. And, and a really nice study I'll mention about this re recently, and I'll come back to other modalities soon, was um, was a running study in the Netherlands. And this was a randomized controlled trial for people going to see their GP for their first instance of depression. And what they did uh, is they were randomized by the, by the team to either receive an antidepressant medication or to have running therapy. So running three times a week for sort of 20 to 30 minutes. And they followed them up over four months. And what they found is in this obviously a very aerobic focused exercise is that the running group had just as much improvements in mental health symptoms as the antidepressant medication group. I think, um, and, and also, you know, importantly, is there was many less side effects um, in the exercise group because we know that antidepressant medication, once it helps people, does have side effects like all medications do, often mm. metabolic you know, weight gain yeah. side effects, sexual side effects for some people too. Cool. So the side effect profile from aerobic exercise is obviously much better and more favorable. And would that have been, were they running on their own or were they were they running in groups like, you know, your park run type stuff? Yeah, running, you know, in, yeah, running, in, running in groups, small groups. I mean, I mean, we will get on to that. I think that's, that's a, a missing component in the modern world, this whole sense of, like, you know, we're talking on the screen. It's great, but, the, you know, COVID showed us that we can communicate on these screens. There's so many people isolated. 
Um, so this this will be steady state cardio, I suspect. Um, any differences in terms of uh, brain function between maybe doing something like a a hit session, you know, a really high intense circuit class, as opposed to some steady state walking or running? Yeah, so I think so. We see ben, we see changes in brain and brain perfusion with low intensity activity, which is great because you don't always need to go hard to experience that benefit. But you do tend to see, um, you know, increase in in changes of you know sort of brain perfusion from more intense activities to moderate and vigorous intensity, and then some of the other neurotransmitters, you tend to see more of a a release for sort of BDNF. Um, some other things too. So, you know, this is released at a lower intensity, but the harder you work, then the the more of a release you get within this. And of course, there's always a trade-off because the harder you work, the more difficult it is to sort of keep it up in the long term. So it's always yeah. a sort of trade-off between do I want to like a short-term benefit or do I want to keep doing this for you know a long period of time? When you say brain perfusion, what does that does that mean exactly? So perfusion, blood flow within the brain. So we're gotcha. talking about blood flow within right. care of the brain. Yeah, because it's interesting when, when we talk about intensity and modality. I don't know what your views are on this, but quite often I'll work with, you know, type A personalities, busy, busy, lots of caffeine, finish work, late, head to a said high intensity class, smash the life out of themselves, flood themselves with cortisol and adrenaline, <laughs> bite off flight, go home, impact sleep. So, I mean, do you think intensity of, of activity could have an impact on someone's mental well-being? I suppose I'm moving into the realm of stress and the impact that has on us all. Yeah, well, I think, you know, there's only so long we can be in an aroused state and it's important for us. To, to not be in a continual aroused state for all people. Because if you're looking for improved mental health and better sleep, then you know, doing high intensity stuff, particularly towards the end of the day, for most people makes it more difficult to, to sort of sleep you know, and relax in the, in the evening. So I think it's a case of everybody's got their own circadian rhythm. What will work mm. for you will be different. Everyone's got their own circumstances. And really that's what the research evidence says on exercises. You know, probably on average slightly better benefits for exercising in the morning, but really it doesn't really matter if that doesn't work for you. And really, the best thing is for you to do what works for you because that's the thing you can keep doing. Um, yeah. So it's so that's so that's good. So I think it's it's important for, for 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 movement to be enjoyed. It's important for it to be light for some people, and vigorous is good for some people. But I think it's good for mm. all people to have a bit a period of downtime. And actually, that reminds me of a. I believe it's a study you're involved with now with uh or you or the paper the, the research hasn't come out adolescence i'm sure i heard you talk about adolescence and like just general movement uh is that something that's that's the data's been released or is that something you're still working on so we've done a few things in adolescence um working with young people so again we in, in with some colleagues in china we looked at people in school like teenagers 12 to 14 um, and we wanted to see if people had what we call sub-threshold depressive symptoms. So, you know, teenagers in school who weren't engaging in exercise, who were starting to become a bit a bit low in mood, um, were a bit concerned about their health. So we randomised them to have, you know, psychotherapy or uh, running um, a few times a week. And we, we showed that you could improve uh, people's mental health symptoms with running um, in, in this particular group. And we also saw some changes within the brain, the anterior cingular cortex, um, within these people we also saw some gut microbiome changes uh, within these young adolescents too and obviously it's a key key time for the gut microbiome yeah it's amazing I mean I when you think about the modern world now and you just think about you know how everything's just so easy and we talk about people are talking about this mental health crisis I don't know if it's already I mean when you look at the stats on I suppose it's the the other end of the scale but let's talk about men's mental health for example you know male suicide i mean the, the stats are pretty frightening but actually the interesting thing is i've gone off on a bit of a tangent here but the interesting thing is like the, the suicide rates haven't haven't gone up actually men have been checking out men between the age of 40 and 60 have been checking out since the, the 60s so there's this underlying thing but there seems to be a lot of talk about mental health and covid and companies are talking about it but when we just discuss the evidence like enforced sedentary behavior 
rubbish food. There's all these markers, lack of, um, and we haven't really got onto that, but just isolation, which is, you know, I've read into some, so isolation itself, isn't it? Uh, you, you mentioned interleukin-6, I mean, cytokines and inflammations cause. It's just like, it's just no wonder we're all struggling. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, and no wonder it's become more and more important. But yet again, we're talking about it, but no one's, no one seems to be listening. It's just like, no, I want to um, just, I want to look lean on the bench. And I think that's the thing really around, you know, because we've done work in sort of workplace well-being and mental health too is, you know, it's wonderful that people are starting to have mental health taster sessions, mental health first aid awareness. It's great that people can start to have that conversation. That speaks to a, a good proportion of people. But what we really need to do is to move along with giving people evidence-based solutions. You know, it's good to talk about it. It's good to have an open conversation. All of that is welcomed. But we're probably not going to see a meaningful change in the impact, the burden and the devastating consequences for mental ill health unless we start to put in evidence-based actionable steps. And for me, you know, holistic lifestyle intervention is an evidence-based way to go in and to implement real-world change in a non-stigmatizing way. I mean, if you come in and, and, and said, I'm your mental health counsellor, for instance, you know, some people that may be a bit stigmatising, a bit off-putting, and that may be helpful for many people. But if you come in and say, I'm doing this lifestyle programme, which is evidence-based to do X, Y, Z, then that's open to everybody. I'm not feeling judged at all. I'm having a mental health session. It's Yeah, I love it. Because it is just, mental health is just a component of it. And I think when you fix the the mental health side, uh, you know, you just, you make better choices, you know. It's like, yeah, you just... You, self i mean this is the thing as well so i've had clients in the past who say to me that my goal is just to look a certain way and i can give them what they want and then give them what they need like kind of you've got to draw people in and i have seen it you know people work out hard and body dysmorphia and body image is a real thing in terms of you know confidence but the reality actually i was having a conversation with someone in a reformer class this morning and I was chatting about talking to you because I've been so excited about this because this information is just like, I've been looking for it. I've, I talk about it a lot, but I've got no, no real evidence. Um, so I was chatting to this lady and she was chatting. She's like, everyone's exercising. And I said, no, no, no. Kedna, what you don't realise is, is that like we're in a reformer class. We go to gyms, you're on Instagram, you live in this echo chamber. Most people are doing nothing. And she looked at me as if to say, and I think we forget that when we look at the statistics. So I looked at the physical activity report for the UAE uh, a couple a couple of months ago. It is shocking how many people are getting nowhere near the recommended guidelines. And so Chebna looked at me and I said, no, no. So a lot of people, most people, and I believe it's true, they get up, they drive to work or they sit on the tube if they're in the UK, they commute, they sit down all day. They eat rubbish food, they, they drive home, they crack open a bottle of wine, they order a takeaway and they go to sleep and they rinse and they repeat it. Yeah. And it's like, no wonder. Um, um, yeah, and I, th I think that's just such an you know important thing. And, and, you know, we're talking about knowledge and knowledge changes. We've never had so much knowledge about the benefits of physical activity and exercise. Yet if you look at physical activity levels, I don't know, there was a study in the United States recently, is they're at best remaining flat. So something is not getting to the right people who really need it for the majority who are struggling to meet those guidelines. It's not a knowledge gap now. No. It's really an implementation gap. We've never had so much knowledge for people to show the health and well-being benefits for people. Yeah. And and what do you think? I mean, I'd, I'd be interested to know your your views on this because so I'm going into the corporate space and the corporate well-being space at the moment is and corporate well-being is a massive umbrella. There's relationships with management. There's you know, psychological trust or psychological safety. There's a lot of terms that are thrown around leadership styles. And but when you look at most people, most people are not moving. And it, in a way, I'm seeing wellness programs almost being shat on a little bit like they don't work the outcome measures are not there and for me when i listen to this stuff it's like it's not it's not wellness solutions it's not it's the strategic implementation this is my view you know it's just like companies and organizations need to change the culture where moving more making better choices around food 
are easily accessible. And and I think leaders need to understand their roles in promoting that because you, you throw up a stat like, I don't know, have you seen a, a podcast? It was a TED talk of a guy called Anders Hansen, by any chance. No. Right. So th this, prior to, to seeing your work, this was always my go-to. <laughs> this is my little thing. I'll talk to people about mental health and I would suggest this TED talk. This guy, Anders Hansen, it's quite a popular one. He stands on stage, Norwegian researcher, and he's talking about physical. Uh, now, look, I don't mean, I'll, I'll, read, I'll read this out because it's it, I, it just when he comes up. So he comes on stage, right, this TED talk. And, and this is basically what this Anders Hansen says. It's a few years back. He says, right, he goes, uh, imagine that you had a pill in front of you and that pill could make you more creative. It could improve your energy. It can improve your memory. It could make you more tolerant to stress and make you more focused. Perhaps it could make you even smarter. Well, such a pill would sound too good to be true, right? But there is actually such a pill, and it's called physical exercise. And and it's like and this guy just stands on stage and talks about what you're talking about, and it, and it still blows my mind that that people are not grasping it, and organisations are not grasping it. But what do you think? I mean, you're in the research field, and knowledge is is one key. But do you have any thoughts on how we can bridge that gap, and 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 what maybe? governments need to be doing or is it responsibility is it like a you know a, a kind of a tory approach but is it personal responsibility where do you think the solutions lie so i think that the the solutions you know we have to make you know we have to make options available for people to to come and try different uh, approaches so i think it's very much about giving people time permission and resources and i think really we've lost the way a lot because there's lots of new flashy things i don't know mm. i don't know library pods or do this xyz and these look lovely and flashy but yeah. you know and i'm sure they're going to be commercially successful but if we go back to what are the fundamental things do there's a big report done by the government in the uk showing just getting the fundamentals is really like right to improve longevity and you know, getting access to you know nature being more active eating well these are the sort of fundamentals not getting distracted around some of these other sort of like niche things which which may or may not work and have often not been tested so i think you know it's often not as sexy but it's, you know, it's really where the evidence is and it's really something people can empower themselves today. Yeah. Is, there, is there a guy playing an oboe in your house above you there, Brendan? There's someone drilling. Oh, is that a drill? I, I wasn't sure. I was thinking, it sounded like, you know, those Maori uh, things. I was thinking, is it an oboe or is someone drilling? Right. <laughs> I wonder Sorry, what it was. Yeah. It's, not, it's quite nice. It's quite a nice tone. Um, yeah, I think you're right. And I think fundamentally... The work that you're doing and the evidence that you're you're producing, um, it, I think this is my view. I think fitness professionals need to be reading this research and they need to be talking about it more. Um, I, I presented at a fitness conference recently here in the UAE and um, I was talking about corporate well-being. And I walked up on stage and the idea was talking to a group of fitness professionals and the message was, there is, there, here's a career opportunity for you guys. Move into the corporate wellbeing space. I gave some stats about, you know, the strategic implementation, why we needed more fitness professionals involved in the decision-making of how stuff can work, because that's what fitness professionals do. They look at barriers, they give people options and choices, and they work. I went off script a little bit, Brendan, so I, walk, I walked up on stage, and I'd been there about an hour before, and I was wandering around. Now, I've got nothing against bodybuilding, or physique competitors, nothing at all. But I walked into what was the biggest fitness conference in the region, and I wandered around for half an hour, and there was some big guys, it was pro bodybuilders there, and it was just, it was lip, rip, lean, ripped individuals walking around. There was a, uh, a stage next to me, which was a Les Mills stage, so there was loads of racket, and I walked up on stage, and it was, and I just stopped, and I went off script. And I said, look, guys, I'm going to have a little rant here. I said, I'm at the biggest fitness conference in the region. And, and I've been talking about the cognitive and the ment mental health benefits of exercise. And I cited your, your recent documentary, Mind Games Experiment, which we'll talk about now. And I said, and I have not, so I've been at this conference, I said, and I have not seen one message, one sign that talks about this stuff. And it was just like, it just dawned on me. Not one person 
not one stall, not there wasn't one message there. And I thought, well, you know, where is we've we forgotten about this stuff? This is like the low hanging fruit. We've got a mental health crisis. Everyone's stressed. No one knows what to do. And it's like, it's just staring us in the face. And there's people like you who are just grateful for are producing this evidence. And it's just so important, Brendan. Genuinely, so excited about what you're doing. Hopefully, I'm going to be able to rob all your studies, memorize them, and just tell people about this stuff and obviously motivate people. Give people the why. Why should I keep going to reformer? Why should I keep doing Pilates? Oh, it's a bit like hard work. Well, you're going to benefit now. Now, sorry for that other rant, but I just yeah, it gets on my nerves. But anyway, last thing I'd like to talk about, which was actually my introduction to your work. So I listened to a podcast. You just happened to be the guest. It said physical activity and mental health. I'll give this a listen. And it was you talking about this recent documentary, which I would urge anyone listening to this now to get involved in. Uh, it's called Mind Games the Experiment. It's it's a, a one-hour documentary. It's on YouTube. It is, and again, it's just honestly, it's one of those things where you watch it and you go, oh my God, like this is so obvious and so powerful. Anyway, I'll hand out the mic over to you. Mind Games the Experiment. Tell the listeners a little bit about this. Yeah, thanks, Matt. So I think this was a really interesting concept. So we wanted to look at the people who are really high cognitive functions, and maybe you can employ it, you can adapt this to people in the workplace who are extremely mm. high functioning. Yeah. So these were like what we called mind gamers. They were internationally competitive chess players, uh, speed cupers. All these people had really sharp minds, were brilliant and elite in their field, but they were sedentary and they weren't engaging in any regular exercise. And we wanted to see with these like very high cognitive functioners who were sedentary by adding in exercise for the first time into their lives at regime, could we boost their cognitive performance generally? And then also their performance in their chosen sort of specialities more. And we got people on a three month um, sort of personal trainer led approach. We've got people in aerobic and resistance training um, and gradually increased people's uh, exposure to exercise, trying to get people up to recommended uh, targets over that time and uh, essentially what we found is in this group of people who were really not particularly fit at the start is that we saw you know at least a 10% improvement in when we objectively tested people's cognitive function you know wow. memory concentration all of these important things which many of us would want and within their chosen fields where they were you know internationally outstanding we had world record holders um, we saw 75% improvement in people's international rankings within their field um, and, and people's fitness improved, people's mental health improved. So when you look at, you know, all of this and you take it outside of high cognitive functions who are not engaging in exercise, you, know, you can meaningfully improve people's daily experiences of being cognitively alert and concentrating, improve people's mental health, you know, even those who have really got high cognitive capacity anyway. It's incredible. And I think it's a, it's a nice way to, to finish this conversation because the conversation has been, we've spoke about, you know, mental health and people that are struggling. And actually, when we look at it, grand scheme of things, you might be a high performer if you want to perform better. And everyone does. Career well-being is important. You know, just movement is is key. Um, in terms of, like, I know, I, I saw the, the, the actual uh, documentary was sponsored by those lot on your jersey, I believe. Is that right? Is it the old? Yes, that's right. Yeah? yeah. And Stephen Fry, those in the UK, listeners in the, I was quite impressed when I put the documentary on the Stephen Fry narrated, but it is a, it's quite heartwarming. But it just, it, it's a great documentary, and the results are staggering and astounding. So yes, if you are listening and you think I'm all right, I'm not struggling with mental health, and a lot of people don't ever get into that bracket, there's always room for improvement. Um, I mean, there's 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 so much more I wanted to talk to you about, but, but there is uh, obviously time limits. Um, is there anything, uh, if people want to connect, I know you're researching, uh, is there anywhere you'd like to steer people if they want, they want more information, particularly fitness professionals? Let's say you're a fitness professional and you go, I really want to read more about this stuff. Anywhere you direct people. I would say the best place to start is my Instagram account. And I tend to post, try and post regularly about insights around physical activity, exercise, mental health, cognitive health. So Dr. Brendan Stubbs, uh, I'm available on uh, Instagram. That'd be the best place to start or, or join me. Find me on LinkedIn. Nice. 
Uh, Brendan, I just want to say thank you for all the work you're doing. Uh, it's such an incredible message. It's so important. And I firmly believe the fitness industry need to pick this up again and run with it because I do think the knock-on effect is profound. And yeah, we've got a bit of a crisis. Thank you so much for your time, mate. You've been amazing. Thank you.